You're listening to the Bridges Nashville podcast. Bridges is a house church movement meeting in homes all across Music City. To find a house church near you or to find other ways to support or get involved, go to BridgesNashville.com. Love one another. What does that mean? Well, a couple of weeks ago, uh, one of my friends reached out and wanted to grab coffee. And so we met for coffee and he just asked me, he said, Curtis, what is a big need in your life right now? Because he, he and his wife, Karen, they just wanted to bless us. And so I just thought of the top of the thing that popped into my head. I said, well, our, we have a retaining wall out in our front yard and it's disintegrating. So I guess I could use a new retaining wall. Totally half sarcastic. And he said, oh, I've got experience. I've got experience building a retaining walls. And so I was really surprised. He and his wife, Karen, came over along with my cousin who pitched in and they helped us build a retaining wall. As you can see it right there, it looks really, really great. I think we've got another picture with the crew that worked on it. And trust me, it was in bad shape before. And uh, thanks to good friends, let me tell you, no greater love has one person than this for another than to lay down a retaining wall for their neighbor. Okay, I realized in this three-day process, I am not a spring chicken anymore. I think the Nashville chiropractors got a little bit extra work uh, last week, but it was so much fun. And here's what happens when you're laying down a retaining wall. Here's what I realized. It is a process. It's not a quick thing. It is block by block, row by row, and it all starts with the very first block. We like to call that the cornerstone. I know you're probably familiar with that type of language, but here's what happens. If that first initial block that's laid down is off center, guess what? The rest of the wall is gonna be janky and off center. If that first section isn't precisely laid down, measured out and all balanced, front to back, side to side, the rest of the wall is not gonna be right. What am I talking about? Well, in the New Testament, there are about 60 one another phrases. And that's what this series is going to be all about over the next couple of months. Now, the Greek word here for one another is alelon, alelon, and it shows up about 100 times in the New Testament. And it is a reciprocated type of living. It's how I should treat you, and it's how you should treat me back with no agenda, but simply because we're filled with the love of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. And so over the next eight weeks, we're going to explore some of the key ways that the first century church lived out their lives. And in doing so, in living out a one another lifestyle, they changed their culture. See, just a few hundred years after Christ walked the earth, this tiny band of Christ followers would become the official religion of the entire Roman Empire. And it was largely due to this one another lifestyle. Phrases like encourage one another, spur one another on to good things, pray for one another, bear one another's burdens. About 60 of them, but they all really hinge on this first one. One that Jesus said to his followers, love one another. See, the cornerstone of all this is love. And that really shouldn't surprise us that love is the building block of all of these other one another phrases. Why? Because love is the foundation of everything scripture teaches us. First Corinthians 13, dubbed the love chapter, ends with this verse. And now these three remain, but faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. You know, love is the first fruit listed in Galatians 5, the fruits of the Spirit. In fact, 1 John 4, 16 tells us that God is love. Love is central to the gospel. It's God's all-encompassing characteristic, and it's the foundation of a life that follows after Jesus. 
And yet if there's one thing that our culture gets wrong, it's this concept of love. Love isn't love. God is love. We have to first base our love for one another in the word of God. So here's the cool thing. There's four different types of love that are outlined throughout scripture. Number one, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. Eros love. It's the Greek word E-R-O-S. And this is the type of love that's a romantic. It's, it's a sensual type of love that's clearly outlined for the confines of a marriage between a husband and a wife. And this is kind of something that you read about the intimacy of a, of a husband for a wife in Song of Solomon, right? Not many churches will do a series on Song of Solomon. I, I, I quite haven't figured out how to do that uh, just yet. But this Eros love is all about possessing the object of your love. Then you have Storge love. Storge love, it's S-T-O-R-G-E. And this is the family-based type of love. You know, I've got two kids, my wife Sarah, we, we love our kids, so this is kind of familial type of love. And here's what we see with Noah and his family on the ark. Here's what we see with uh, jo- uh, Jacob and his sons, especially Joseph. Okay, got a little out of whack with that Storge kind of love. Mary and Martha with their brother Lazarus. It's actually the same type of love that we see in Romans 12.10 that says, be devoted to one another in love. That's storge. Then the third type of love is, is philia, P-H-I-L-I-A. And this is a deep friendship type of love. You guys, my friend Chris Douglas was leading worship. Did you guys enjoy Chris? He is an epic worship leader. And I've known this guy for about 10 years. And, and we, we, we jokingly call ourselves the Bash Brothers of worship, right? So there's like this brotherly love that we have for one another. We're constantly like edging each other on and we we have phone conversations almost every single week. But it's this brotherly type of love and that is philia. In fact, you probably have heard of the city Philadelphia. They get their root word P-H-I-L from this brotherly type of love. But if you've ever gone up there to see an Eagles game, you know that they're not always walking in that type of love. Okay, and then you have this fourth type of love and it's agape. And this is the highest form of love in the Bible. This is the type of love that Jesus actually references when he gives us this love one another command. It's a perfect love. Unconditional. We say that a lot, but we don't realize what it means. It actually means there are no conditions for me to love you. You don't have to do something or be something. I just love you for who you are. And God says that to us because we're his children. This is this perfect sacrificial love that God demonstrated for us through Christ. So I want us to look at John chapter 13. We're going to hang out here for a little bit today. 34 and 35 says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. How are you, how are you known? Like, are you known by where you work, where you're from, what your skills are? I know in Nashville, a lot of us are known by what instrument we play or how many songs we've written or who's cut our songs. But ask yourself, how do people recognize you? Back in my uh, high school days, I was captain of our soccer team. And that sounds kind of cool, but I was the worst player on the team. I didn't score a goal the entire senior year. Half the time I ran off without the ball. I think the only reason I was voted team captain was because my team knew I wouldn't make them practice that hard. But one of my responsibilities was that on every game day, I had to make sure the team wore our jumpsuits. These were lime green Adidas windsuits. They were pretty fly. This is in the late 90s, so you know they were cool. And when we walked into Glenver High School, everybody could recognize us. There goes the soccer team. It was how we were identified. And Jesus is saying, look, the world 
will identify that you're on my team, not from what you wear, but how you love one another. John 13, where we're drawing this passage from, takes place right before Jesus' arrest, trial, and crucifixion. This is at the Last Supper, or in other words, the first communion. And Jesus is with his closest friends, his crew. And he knows that hours and minutes are ticking down from the time that he will die on the cross. Days are ticking down from when he will leave his disciples. And when you are with those who are the most close to you, what are you going to tell them in your final hours? I would say you would probably tell them what's most important, what you need them to know, what you need them to remember, what you need them to carry on after you're gone. See, up until this point, the world knew that they were his disciples because he was with them. Everywhere Jesus traveled, his disciples went with him. They camped out with him. They ate with him. They were involved in his miracles and his ministry. In fact, they were learning and watching everything he did. But now came the time where that wouldn't be their identifier, that they were rolling with Jesus. Their identifier would be love. Let me ask you, what if you loved people so much that when people saw your life, they said, man, that's somebody that loves Jesus. That must be a follower of Jesus. What if when an unbeliever saw your, your Facebook or your Instagram page, what if they looked at that and said, man, something's different about this person. They're not filled with the rhetoric of the world. They speak in love. They operate in love. Everything they say doesn't point to themselves, but points above. What if somebody in your workplace or where you go to school saw how you interacted with your family and your friends in your neighborhood and your conversations at home? Would they be challenged to get to know this God? Or would they say, oh, they're pretty much just like me? They must not have any answers. See, we won't be known as a Christ follower simply by going to a church or posting our religious beliefs on our social media accounts or even by that T-shirt you wear that has a cross. We're going to be known by our love, how you love one another. And here's the cool thing. You'll actually know that you're a disciple if you can love other people. That's how you know you'll truly have been transformed. Listen to what it says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 14. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. That's how you're going to know that you're a disciple when you can truly love other people. I love Billy Graham's quote. He says, it's God's job to judge. It's the Holy Spirit's to convict. It's my job to love. That is our holy job description. So then the question becomes, how, how? How do we love one another? I'm glad you asked. John 15, verse 12 and 13 says, My command is this, love each other, how? As I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. How we're to love one another in this New Testament church lifestyle is by laying our lives down. For one another. Is that saying we have to die for each other? In a sense, we die to our flesh, right? Now, this is interesting. When Jesus was asked in the book of John by a man, what is the greatest commandment? You know, in that time, there were rabbis, and Jesus was a rabbi, and he had his crew, his disciples, and you were typically known by one thing, like, what is your thing? Like, what is your yoke, they would call it. And Jesus was like, my, my, my yoke is love. And it was transformative in the day because it, they were led by rules and religious leaders. And Jesus said, 
I give you a new command. So when this guy asked him, what's the greatest commandment? He said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. That wasn't new. See, that actually goes back to Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy chapter 6. Oh, but in John 13, 35, he said, a new command I give you. What makes it new? It was the how. It was the how we are to love one another. And it was the way that Jesus loves us. He laid down his life. He sacrificed for his disciples. He gave up his heavenly status to become a man. He gave up his ability to call down legions of angels to rescue him from the cross. You remember, he could have done that. In an instant, Jesus could have been swept away. All of the pain and all of the sacrifice could have easily been gone. But he loved them so much that he laid down that right. Jesus loved the least, the lost, the last. He cared for the outcast. He gave dignity to the sick and broken. He even crossed cultural lines when he made the Good Samaritan the hero of his parable. When he met with the woman at the well in John chapter four, he didn't do that in that day and age, and yet it led to her becoming a follower of Christ and her entire village coming to salvation. Let's look at the, the table that Jesus would have been sitting at or reclining at during this last supper, and we can learn a lot about the depth of his love. I just wanna kinda look at three of the disciples that were sitting at the table here. You got John, Peter, and Judas, right? So three guys, but they're very different stories. First, we have uh, John. Now, I would say John was probably Jesus' best friend, like his closest friend. John was so close to Jesus that as Jesus was hanging on a cross, he looked down and saw John next to his mother, Mary, and he said, son, this is now your mother. And he looked at his mother, Mary, and said, this is now your son. He didn't do that with any other disciple. This was his best friend. Jesus loved John, and John Love Jesus. And this shows us we need to love those who love us back, right? We need to love family. We need to love family even when it's hard. That's John. Then you've got this guy, Peter. And Peter was a friend of Jesus, but he's one of those friends that I call EGR, you know, like extra grace required. Like, I don't know if you have any of those friends in your life, but EGR is real, okay? In the same chapter, John 13, Peter actually tells Jesus, I'll have this kind of love for you. I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus looks back and says, actually, you're going to deny that you even know me. But he saw past that and loved Peter so much that he commissioned him to build his church. This type of love shows us that we're called to love those in our lives that may disappoint us. Those people in our lives that may turn their back on us, maybe even walk out on us, but love them anyway. So that's Peter. Then you've got, and then you've got Judas. Jesus loved Judas. Knowing that Judas would betray him for 30 pieces of silver, that was not a large amount of money back in this day. Here's what you need to know about Judas. Judas, Judas was actually in charge of the money bag. He was like their finance guy. So everywhere they went, food wasn't free. They had to pay for it. So Judas would walk around with the money and he was always looking for a moment to score, just skim a little cream off the top of the crop. This is why when, when the woman with the alabaster jar anointed Jesus, Judas is like, oh, that could have been sold for a year's wages. He was thinking of how to line his own pockets. Judas was always concerned more about money than people. Listen, the love of money will destroy you. That's why it's so healthy to have a giving and a generous lifestyle. Because giving cleanses our heart of greed. Money will consume you. And it did to Judas. And yet, Jesus loved him anyway. He washed his feet. 
knowing that he would sell him out. And this type of love teaches us to love our enemies. So that's the, that's the table that night. Then you go outside of the 12 disciples, and let's just look at the climate of, of, of the land at that time. Jesus spoke these words of love in a very divided time. You've got Roman rule, political tension, taxes were out of control, Jew versus Gentile. It was very us versus them. Sound familiar? Us versus them. Today we have so many issues that divide people into camps. And if they're not in our camp, they're not just wrong, they're evil. Oh, you can't be a Christian and say that. You've got mask versus no mask, Republican versus Democrat, vaccine, no vaccine. Where do you fall in matters of racial tension? People want to know as a church where we fall with social and political issues before they even want to know if we preach the gospel. And here's the deal. At Bridges, we will preach the word of God. At Bridges, we will always present the gospel every single week. It is the most important facet of your life, whether we're here at the listening room or online in house churches during those weeks. We are a church that is centered on the word of God and the word made flesh, who is Jesus. So I can guarantee you one thing, we're not the same. You and I will probably disagree on something. I probably don't see eye to eye with you on every issue under the sun, but that is not what Jesus asks for. He doesn't ask for uniformity. He asks for unity. In fact, he prayed for it. I want us to check out John chapter 17. This is one of the most powerful moments of scripture in the gospels. And I want us to read this understanding that Jesus is praying for you. Let that sink in. Jesus is praying for me. He's praying for you. He's praying for us in this passage. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. Talking about his disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's those of us who belong to the body of Christ. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. What does it look like to love one another? Well, for one, it looks like unity. Living in harmony, being peacemakers. And to do that, listen to me, to do this right here, we have to quit identifying with any of these issues before you identify in Christ. See, people can get so desperate just to belong to something today that they'll put their very identity in politics or in social issues or in different camps and not in Jesus. This is why it's so important where it says in 2 Corinthians 5 that if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone and the new is here. This is our very identity being in Christ and nothing else. And the love of Jesus, it builds bridges, not walls. One of the reasons we named our church Bridges Nashville. In fact, in a very literal sense, the temple in Jerusalem had a dividing wall between Jews and believing Gentiles. Like they couldn't even be in the same temple together to worship the same God. And side note, what's a Gentile? What's anyone that wasn't of the Jewish descent? The Jews believed that they were the one and only chosen race and no one else was welcome in this day and age. 
It was Jews versus Gentiles, us versus them. And Jesus squashed that theory. Ephesians 2, 14 to 16. For Christ himself has brought us to peace. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. In his book, The Speed of Unity, uh, pastor and author Rob Ketterling says, when we exclude the them from the community of humanity, we've got to understand these are people of inestimable value because they were created in the image of God. When we do that, he says, we're forgetting that the love of Jesus changes everything. See, when you can see the other, when you can see one another as children of God, created in his image, the same people that Jesus died for, just like you, that should shift our perspective. Let differences grow you. Let differences challenge you. Let them give you new perspectives. Listen to one another. That's one of the best ways to love somebody is to simply be there and hear them out. Listen to their story. Too often right now, people are looking for anything out there that will justify their personal attitudes, beliefs, and preferences. People would rather be right than righteous. But I would say we have so much more in common than we do that would divide us. The word community, right? We are a community of faith. When you split that word, it means common and unity. What is it that we have in common that unites us? Well, we're made in God's image. If you're a follower of Jesus, every follower of Jesus has the same purpose that anybody else does. Because Jesus gave the Great Commission not to only this denomination or only this people group. He said, hey, if you're my followers, go make disciples. And I talk to a lot of young people and their purpose is a very big thing. That every, I want to know why I'm here. I want to know what I'm supposed to do. Start with making disciples. Discipleship is I know Jesus. I know you want to know Jesus. Let me help you do that a little bit better. You can do that. Who are you making a disciple today? We have so much more in common. We're, we're all made in his image. We're all saved by grace. And he died for each and every one of us. I think too often we get distracted by sideways energy, divisive conversations. And what happens with sideways energy is that it keeps you from moving forward on mission with Jesus to make disciples, to be his hands and feet. So I wanna to close today with just a couple practical ways on how to pray, because prayer changes everything. I don't know about you, maybe it's just me, but I really easily get annoyed and frustrated by all the noise that's happening. See, like every time I turn the news on for just five minutes, I get easily frustrated. And it's so quick to stray from loving one another. I have to pray daily that God would fill me with his love. Love is the first fruit of the spirit listed in Galatians 5. Listen to me. Despite what Disney might say, love does not come from within. Love comes from the Holy Spirit. You don't have enough capacity in you to love one another the way that Jesus does. That's why we've got to pray every day, like MC Hammer said. You gotta pray just to make it today. But in all honesty, you need to pray every day to be filled with more of his spirit, filled with more of his love. And when you're filled up, you've got something to pour out. 
So I'd start with doing that daily. Pray for more of his love. Pray for more of the spirit. Second, pray for those that you find hard to love. Even those who oppose you, even those who may be considered your enemies. Because here's what happens. When you pray for somebody, it's really hard to be angry at them. I don't know what it is about prayer. But when you pray for somebody, you begin to get God's heart for them. And he gives you a new perspective on how to see them the way that he does. The kingdom way is to love those who aren't like you. Those who wrong you. Even those who hate you. Remember Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Before we can talk about any of the other one another statements, we've got to get this loved one down. In fact, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 14, he said, let love be your highest goal, okay? Let love be your highest goal. And Paul is writing to the early church in Corinth because the way they were acting towards one another was not very Christ-like. They were very divided, divided by wealth, divided by status, divided by class. And this is only 20, 30 years after Jesus walked the earth, okay? And he said, you need to be united with one mind in Christ. So he told them a little bit about love, what that looks like practically and spiritually. And that's when he wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And if I could encourage you, when you leave this place, go home at some point today. Go home at some point this week. If you're watching online, at some point, read 1 Corinthians 13 and see what this love looks like. I've been asking the question, is it, is it even possible, God, for the culture that we live in, for the chaos that we live in to change? Sometimes I just feel so defeated. I feel like, you know, America is moving in a post-Christian direction so rapidly right now. God, is it even possible for any of this to change? And the answer is yes. And here's how it changes. By the love of Christ that's activated in his church. Why do I say that? It happened in Rome. Listen to this. In the generations before and after Christ, and I close with this, child sacrifice and infanticide or the killing of young babies was very common practice in pagan society. In fact, Roman couples were actually encouraged to leave unwanted babies, whether sick or deformed, simply if it was the wrong sex and they didn't want a girl, they could leave those babies outside of the city wall in the city dump. And in most cases, it led to their death. Oh, but the first church, the first century Christians were known for rescuing these innocent, helpless children, taking them in, raising them as their own, even if it just meant for their last few days while they were living here on earth. The first Christians knew that every life, every life is made in the image of God, and it has value before being born, after being born. Every life has value. And this had such an impact on the emperor Constantine that he ended up outlawing infanticide, outlawing child sacrifice, and eventually declaring Christianity as the official Roman religion. He said, these guys are doing something that, that we, we don't have quite figured out, and, and they seem to be happy, and they seem to be joyful, and they seem to want to be around each other, and they seem to get it. Let's do that. And obviously, anytime you make something official, it starts to get out of whack over the years. But I'll tell you this much, Rome was transformed. See, the love of God will always transform. The love of God will always lead to life. And if you're here or you're watching online and you don't know what this love is, I want to tell you it starts with Jesus. He is the fullest expression of God's love for us. God loves us so much that he sent his son to, to die a horrific death on a Roman cross so that we could have forgiveness and experience the fullness 
of life. And I want you to know today, if you don't hear me on anything else, hear this. You are fully known and deeply loved. That's amazing. You are fully known. There's not a thing about you that God doesn't know, and yet he still deeply loves you. I close with John, 1 John 3.16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the Bridges Nashville podcast. To stay up to date on everything going on at Bridges, you can find us online at facebook.com slash Bridges Nashville or at Bridges Nashville on Instagram.